Studio P in Sausalito, the home of the hit. It's time for... Suckatash. The number one award-seeking comedy podcast about comedy. Podcast. And here's your host, internationally recognized comedy podcast podcaster, Mark Hershaw. Yes, it's me, your old or perhaps new friend, Mark Hershon, and I will be your concierge for Epi 93 of Suckatash, the comedy podcast podcast. First off, let me apologize for the delay in bringing you this episode of the podcast. I've been swamped at both my regular job, which is a full-time, in-the-office, meeting-with-clients, boss-to-answer-to kind of thing, and I've also been doing some writing in my off hours, which is more fun, but less profitable. Several articles coming out for Marin Magazine, so if you uh, have access to that, you can actually get to it online through marinmagazine.com, and my first uh, article in there is in the September issue, so you can check that out if you want. Uh, I'm also helping a buddy in L.A. work on a screenplay long distance, which involves a lot of emails, phone calls, and pecking away at a file that we keep sending back and forth to each other, and uh, hopefully we'll get it done one of these days. Back to Succotash, normally we feature a generous helping of clips from comedy podcasts from around the internet. I am still in sort of a coming out of recovery mode from the tragic suicide of Robin Williams. So for the next couple of episodes, uh, we're going to do a little different things than we normally have been doing with our usual fare. We're still going to be playing some clips, so don't worry about that. I've got several clips this episode that have been harvested by our associate producer, Tyson Sainer. We also have a double dose of Durst with two bursts of Durst this episode with comedian, social commentator, Will Durst. Uh, the 10 most active shows in Stitcher's Top 100 Comedy Podcast list. Uh, tweet Sack, of course. And a brand new Henderson's Pants commercialless episode. I'm going to talk a little bit about Robin in this episode, mainly because in my interview with this Epi's special guest, W. Kamau Bell, he and I talk about it towards the end of our time together. I interviewed him a couple of weeks ago, and we'd only just gotten the news a few days earlier, so we kind of had to talk about it as we both uh, uh, knew him fairly well. Uh, being here in the San Francisco comedy scene. I am, however, planning a special Robin tribute episode, which is likely to be entirely clip-based. Tyson Saner is working hard right now to round up as many clips as he can find where the podcasters have mentioned and reflect on Robin and who he was, as well as what he meant to and what he brought to people. So uh, that's going to be a, an episode we'll be having uh, very soon. I was texting with our friend Phil Arnest, co-host of the Chill Pack Hollywood Hour, just two days after uh, Robin was found dead, and he asked me how I was feeling. I told him, stunned. He responded on uh, their podcast this week, much as he did to me in text form. Look, uh, so many people expressed being stunned. Our friend Mark Hershon was stunned, and, and I think stunned is one of those words people use like when they're feeling angry. Yeah. Uh, as of, okay, but what are you really feeling? You know, if you weren't feeling angry, what would you be feeling? And if you weren't feeling stunned, what would you be feeling? You might feel something. And I think right. stunned is one of those things we use to protect our, ourselves uh, from the depth of what we're feeling because I was stunned, honestly, that anybody could be stunned. I mean, <laughs> I, I kind of looked at my watch and said, oh, okay, so today's the day it happened. And I gather anyone who really listened to that interview that you did with Rick Overton had very much the same response because I right. think he more or less laid this out that this was quite possibly coming. In retrospect, looking back now, yes, I suppose it's easy to say we should have seen this coming. Uh, I was uh, recently at a get-together that Tom Sawyer, the former owner of Cobb's Comedy Club in San Francisco, had hosted at his house. So a bunch of people from the Bay Area comedy scene who knew Robin could hang out and just sort of be with each other. We were all sharing clues and trying to piece together how this could have happened. 
And if we'd somehow been able to magically have had such a get-together before Robin took his own life, we'd have had more of the puzzle pieces put together, I think. Um, you know, I first saw Robin perform at a little club in Sausalito, just over the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco, way back in 1978. He was a few years ahead of me at the same high school and in the same junior college, actually, before he headed off to Juilliard, but I never really crossed paths with him back then. But after I saw him perform the first time in Sausalito, I started hanging out in the comedy scene in San Francisco in the late 70s and early 80s, and we'd see each other every so often. We occasionally even ended up sharing a stage and doing some improv together from time to time, and he was actually a fairly regular fixture in my comedy life during the last 30 years. So when he was hanging out back in Marin County again after his CBS TV show got canceled, he was down. Depressed, I guess, but not dour or morose, so to speak. At the most, you might suspect he'd he maybe had started drinking again or maybe using coke or some other drugs that he'd used to be into, but no one that I knew uh, uh, that knew him figured him ending it all. So stunned, at least for me, was a viable reaction to carry me through the first week and a half without him being around. Then the grief starts to creep in and sadness and that horrible, horrible knowledge that I'll never see him hanging around the scene anymore. He'll never be a surprise we didn't even know was in town, but somehow found out we were doing improv at some shithole bar somewhere, and there he was, bounding up on stage out of the darkness and already in character to help move the scene ahead. But enough of that for now. We, we deal as we do when one of our own has gotten lost and wanders away, and we hope that others around us will take it as a cue to perhaps say something if they can shake the grip of the demon that they're wrestling with long enough to ask for some help. Hi, this is Robin Williams, and you're listening to Succotash, the comedy podcast podcast. I did good, huh? Now I'm a lineman! <laughs> Most of the rest of this show will be given over to my interview with the inimitable W. Kamau Bell, and here's a little taste of that. I was 20, so I started relatively young at 21, but because, for whatever reasons, the scene of comics I started with in Chicago, that I, when I started, I want to say none of them, maybe one or two are still working, but it was not, the scene was not, it's funny, Chicago's a great scene now, but I felt huh. like there was almost like we were just weeds. Like there was no, there, we, there, <laughs> nobody was watering us. Nobody was like, we were just not getting a lot of love and sunlight. Yeah, yeah. And so I, there was a long time where I really was just sort of running in circles. And it wasn't until I came to San Francisco that it was like, I felt like, oh, the competition has gotten better. So yeah. I'm better. If you're in the Bay Area, particularly Marin County, Kamau is going to be doing his latest one-man show, Oh Everything, at the 142 Throckmorton Theater on September 11th. Yep. 9-11, <laughs> 8 p.m. I'll have a link up for the show on the blog for this episode at our home site, SuccotashShow.com. My interview with Kamau will be coming up in just a little bit, but for now, let's jump into... The 10 most active shows in the Stitcher Top 100 Comedy Podcast List. The numbers in the Top 100 Comedy Podcast list on Stitcher have settled down a bit from my last report, but it seems like the top 10 is finally getting pierced, and it's t good to see some action up there at the top. So here we go. At number 6, How Did This Get Made? Moved up 11 points to get up into the vaunted top 10. At 33, What Say You? Up 42 places. At 37, The Champs with Moshe Kasher and Neil Brennan? Up 36 places. At 51, a uh, yeah dude, up 18 spots. At 56, beats and eats, down 46. At 70, answer me this is up 17 places. At 72, sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine, down 33 points. At 87, the Doug Stanhope podcast, down 29 points. 
At 88, the New York City Crime Report with Pat Dixon is up 41 places. And at 90, the Christopher Titus Podcast down 37 places. Since we're not playing a ton of clips this episode, if you're looking to sample some new meat, hop over to Stitcher.com, dip into the comedy top 100 list, and find something new to put in your ears. The 10 most active shows in the Stitcher Top 100 Comedy Podcast List. Here's the first shot of our double dose of durst this show. That's right. It's the first burst of durst for the episode. Hey, guys. We'll durst you with a few choice words about one of the most awkward meetings since Kane attended Abel's funeral. Talking about Barack Obama and the woman rummaging through his closet trying on his presidential pants, Hillary Clinton. The two of them ran into each other at a lawn party at a golf club in Martha's Vineyard the other day. And what could be more working man than that? Lawn party, golf club, Martha's Vineyard. Think we've triangulated the 1% exacta here. Imagine everybody had pastel sweaters tied around their necks as well, munching on canapes. The source of the ungainliness was Ms. Clinton herself, who, in an interview with The Atlantic magazine, described our Syrian policy as a disaster, then said, don't do stupid stuff is not an organizing principle, obviously referring to some past politician whose name is synonymous with shrub, but throwing the current president under the same wheels of that big bus. This is not new news. Most of America thinks that Obama's foreign policy is a lot like Malaysian Air frequent flyer miles. Sure, they both exist on paper, but nobody's really all that interested. A spokesperson said that Hillary looked forward to hugging it out when she and the chief executive met. Yeah, uh-huh. Can see that approaching embrace. To hug or not to hug. Probably as graceful as tumbling dumpsters. Problem is, Hillary and Barack are the past and the future of the Democratic Party. It's like one of those velvet handcuff relationships you see so much in San Francisco these days, where neither person can afford to move up because both incomes are necessary to cover the rent. She needs him to seamlessly insert her into his vast fundraising machine, and he needs her to make sure his legacy is not wiped out in a Tea Party tsunami. Strange bedfellows indeed. Who needs a hug? For Suckatash, the comedy podcast podcast, I'm Will Durst. One more burst of Durst coming at you after the W. Kamau Bell interview later in the show. Will is one of three San Francisco comedians who are the focus of a new documentary called Three Still Standing, along with Larry Bubbles Brown and Johnny Steele. I mentioned it before. Why Why wouldn't I? I'm, I'm in it. But I couldn't say anything till just now about the fact that the film's premiere will be at this year's Mill Valley Film Festival. This is a pretty prestigious event, and Three Still Standing will show three times during the festival, October 4th, 8th, and 10th. Not only that, but there's also going to be a 90-minute live show uh, right after the premiere with the three comedians, some clips from the film, the movie makers, and I will be hosting the show. That's right. It's going to be at the uh, Throckmorton Theater, actually. The uh, film itself will be premiering... um, Where is it going to be? I think it's actually at the Sequoia Theater in Mill Valley uh, on the 4th. So check out the Mill Valley Film Festival website for more information. If you're going to be at the Bay Area, you can check them out at mvff.com. You can get tickets there, too. I will also have an interview with the makers of Three Still Standing coming up here on this very show in just a week or two. All right, let's get into the clips for this show. A couple left over from the last show I was unable to squeeze in that Tyson sent along. And then a couple that I asked him to track down because of a request that I got on the tweeter. First up, though, is... 
the Funny Looking Podcast. We hop across the pond for this one, hosted by Gav and Pete. I don't know a whole lot about the guys behind Funny Looking Podcast, but from their home site, I did take the following. Funny Looking is a podcast recorded by two men with some terrible audio equipment. Our aim is to seek out the funny in this slowly decaying world. We all need a laugh, and hopefully Funny Looking can guide you to something worth your time. At the very least, our podcast should be able to brighten up the commute to work when you are sandwiched between snogging teenagers and smelly, sweaty businessmen. In this clip from their Epi 14, Gavin Pete talked to Ter- Teresa Coyne and Mark Silcox, who are involved in the, and I'm going to screw this up for sure, the Mach in Lilith Comedy Festival. Told you I'd screw it up. Tell me the story, because last year, didn't you say you were going to go off and do some of this stand-up lark? And, and you've been doing it, and you are doing it. So maybe, you know, I, I'm not saying you're a, you were a ringer, but you've got that brain, you've got that brain, you were away. Is that true? Maybe to a certain extent. Like I, I, like I said, I've been doing stand-up a year, a year today, actually. So, at, as well as my birthday, which is quite nice. It's, it's nice to come inside the two, but... Happy birthday. Thank you. Uh, I had to get that in there. <laughs> um, but there is that, st- that feeling where it, I still feel a bit fraudulent. Like when I get a good, a really big laugh or, or an applause break or, or anything like that, I'm still like, oh, I fooled them. <laughs> so it's been, it's, it's, having a go at stand-up always been there? Oh, yeah, massively. Um, I, used to, I used to watch stuff like The Young Ones and Bottom with my mum as a kid. And obviously a lot of the stuff went over my head, but I loved watching it. And I love almost as much watching her reaction to it that's what sticks in my mind and for years when I was like in school and everything I used to love, like, love stand-up DVDs anything comedy sitcom that kind of way and it was always there but it was just that no I don't dare because these people are so gloriously good I don't dare shit all over that <laughs> uh, but then after Mac last year it was just like I said it was just such a good weekend and I got involved with different things and talking to different people and I came away with this sort of, no, I, I can maybe give it a go. Maybe this will be okay and I won't be awful. Um, and I did my first gig about about a week and a half afterwards. That's amazing. From Mac what? to Mac, so you've done how many gigs? It's, I'm averaging at least one or two a week. Amazing. So it's in around the 50 or 60 rock. So not a huge number, but get, getting slowly but surely and I'm getting more and more and you know, bigger gigs and stuff like that. And it's, it genuinely takes me by surprise how nice and how well it's going at the moment. So I'm genuinely happy with it. It's, it's, it's really, it's wonderful. And just the people you meet out of it is, is, is brilliant. You meet so many friends and great people. And I've been to places where I would never have been before. Um, like later on this year, I'm off to Sweden doing some gigs. Um, amazing. Yeah, it's class, isn't it? I'm so excited. Um, with a uh, Swedish comedian, Therese Sanden. Um, so... That will be later in the year. I'm not sure when yet, but it's that's a huge opportunity. It's massive. So. so it was always there, but Mac was the trigger. You went away, you're having a go, and now you're having a ball. I know you're actually just about to, to do a gig tonight, aren't you, on your birthday, on your one-year anniversary? Yeah, so I'm going to shout about that a lot. And I'm also going to tell people that I got a message off Dane Bowers on Twitter, and I'm really happy. <laughs> uh, I did see that. I did see that. What's your Twitter Twitter? Uh, at so robotic. There you go. At so robotic. I think uh, you, you, I very much enjoy your tweets. But more than that, I'm looking forward to. And this sounds a little bit, you know, but syrupy. But I think it's going to happen. I'm looking forward to your royal house first test hour at Mac. Oh, 
that would be so exciting. Come on, that's got to be in the back of your brain. Oh, massively. Yeah, that's what I'm geared towards. I mean, that that's what I want to do. I'm so looking forward to getting to the point of going, I'm going to do my hour. And I want it, oh, I so badly want it to be good. But it's, it's a couple of years down, down the line yet, but I'm having a nice time getting there. It's good. But definitely, Mac is uh, would be a massive milestone. So, I don't know, can I kind of count being at Gittins? I'm like, oh, I have before. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's your Mac. Well, it's not your Mac debut. Surely, Pappy's was your Mac debut. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I should make this a yearly thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, what would you say to people about going to Mac 15? Just go, just go, and have the best time of your life, and enjoy the wonderful craft beer, the gorgeous food. Yeah, I very much enjoyed the craft yeah, beer. I was having a nice time. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, and just go and see as many shows as possible, talk to as many people as possible, and just just go. You can find ten reasons to not do a thing, and that drives me crazy. Just There's one perfectly good reason to go to Mac, and that's the fact that it is Mac. It needs no more explanation. <laughs> I know. It's, um, it's difficult to explain, isn't it? I think some people get a bit fed up until they actually experience it, and then, uh, and then they'll understand. Gav and Peter available at their home site, funnylooking.co.uk, as well as on iTunes and probably most of the other places you can find podcasts to download and stream. Part of the Great American Broadcast Network, or GabNet, includes a podcast or internet radio show called Getting Geeky with Miranda Janelle. Her website says she's smart, she's wired into today's social media, she knows and loves science and technology. She makes all of it easy to understand, and more than that, makes it fun. Then there's movies and TV, which she is very opinionated about, and yes, she can get passionate about politics too. All this adds up to make her the snarky geek queen of GabNet. Now our associate producer Tyson Sainer found her and sliced off this hunk just for you. So happy Canada Day to all of our Canadian friends, and for one in particular, that is Canada with a K. <laughs> if you were listening to Revelstoke Jim's Canadian content last night, uh, the with a K jokes got, got, uh, wow, there were a lot of them and I giggled every single time. Um, but that's what happens when, when you tell a friend that you're looking forward to their show because it's been a very long day and you could use a, sh- a, a smile and, this friend in particular decided to make me laugh my ass off instead, so I appreciate it. <laughs> now, with getting geeky, I, I've i always tried to make the point um, that everyone's a geek about something. And, and that it's, it's really the expression of, of, uh, of your love for really anything that makes you a geek. If, if you're willing to, to put it out there and let people know, I love this so much that I don't mind uh, even potentially making a fool of myself in your eyes, then, then, then you're a geek. You don't have to go to those levels, of course, but, but that's, uh, well, because I'm very good at making a fool of myself, I like to point that particular aspect of it out. But, uh, I was poking around Pinterest a few days ago, and uh, I started thinking, you know, I'm always looking for these inspirational quotes because 
you know, the, the ton of them on on Pinterest. I mean, if, if you're if you're feeling da- down about work, uh, or or your love life, or, or really just about anything, there is a tremendous community out there on Pinterest posting quotes that that ideally should make you feel better. You know, or hopefully at least. I know that. I've taken solace in it before, and and quite a few times late at night when I can't sleep, I'll I'll just be sitting there in my phone making that or laying in bed on my phone making matters worse by having that bright light, you know, the artificial light from the tiny device uh, shining in my face. And what am I doing? I'm in the Pinterest app looking at these quotes, um, you know, that 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 just make me smile. So. I started thinking about it. There's got to be a lot of great geek quotes out there. And so I think I'm going to do something new. I, I, I think at, at least today, and, and we'll see how this works because I've got a couple of them queued up. So at least for the next couple of episodes, I'm going to read off some of them that I particularly ag- agree with. And today's is being a geek is all about your own personal level of enthusiasm, not how your level of enthusiasm measures up to others. If you like something so much that a casual mention of it makes your whole being light up like a halogen lamp, if hearing a stranger fondly mention your favorite book or game is instant grounds for friendship, if you have ever found yourself bouncing out of your chair because something you learned blew your mind so hard that you physically could not contain yourself. You're a geek. And that was Becky Chambers of TheMarySue.com. Yeah, I definitely agree with that one. I definitely agree with that one. So, and and uh, there's just so many fun, wonderful things on 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 Pinterest that I actually started a collection of things that I that I, I set up a board specifically for the show, just things things that I find interesting and and, and maybe want to maybe want to bring up like uh, Ian McKellen wearing a red T-shirt that in white letters says I'm Gandalf and Magneto and then in black letters just below it get over it yeah. <laughs> I like that one. The same guy is Gandalf and Magneto, and I think that's cool. You know, and but he is not Dumbledore. That's a different actor. That's Michael Gambon. Yeah, I, I have heard people make that mistake, <laughs> and I'm not laughing at them. It's just it, it's such an easy one to make because Michael Gambon and Ian McKellen they really could actually look a lot alike if if they really you know i i i could see in mckellen in the dumbledore role so so yeah find more of getting geeky with miranda janelle up at gabroadcaster.com she's also on itunes and stitcher smart radio to get to the two newer clips for this week uh we have a standing offer on this show where we offer you the chance to tell us about your favorite comedy podcast that we maybe haven't had a chance to cover and play a clip from yet. We recently got a tweet from the Angry Beards podcast suggesting that we pay attention to The Dollop with Dave Anthony and Gareth Reynolds. The fact is, the actu- uh, we actually featured a clip from the very first episode of The Dollop when Dave Anthony was flying solo and trying something new with Greg Barrett had stepped off the grid for a bit and there were no new Walking the Room episodes going on. 
That said, we will revisit the dollop in a few minutes. First, though, if you tell us your show is called the Angry Beards Podcast, we have got to check that shit out. Here are Anthony and Alex, or Alex and Anthony, the owners, one supposes, of the aforementioned Angry Beards. Not a whole lot of info about Alex and Anthony. What there was, Tyson managed to shake out of their podcast app. It says, two angry bearded men discussing life in a small town and providing useful information along the way. I was I was talking to Hannah this morning, and I realized I was an old man. I realized that I, should, I probably am forty two. Because was it because you were complaining about those punk kids on your lawn? No, I talk about I really complain and I hate people who talk on their phone in public. Mm-hmm. Like if you're in a restaurant, or you're in a coffee house, and you're just sitting there talking really loudly on your phone, and like everyone's kind of looking yeah. at you. I, I don't want to hear conversation. Fuck off. Go outside. Go outside. No, I'm. Is this your angry moment? I guess, yeah. We're the angry beards. We gotta get mad about some shit. God damn it! Go outside. Get take your fucking phone outside. We're in the fucking. We're in the restaurant trying to eat. I don't want to hear about your fucking construction site. What pisses me off is when people walk around the grocery store with their Bluetooth, and you just think they're crazy. Yeah. But yeah, yeah cell phone use in general. Yeah, uh, the people are like texting and shit. Yeah. Uh, people people driving while they're while they're on their phone. Yeah. I just, I, I kind of want to just take my cell phone and leave it at home at all times and just make it a home phone. Sometimes, yeah. Uh, Will Anderson said uh, once that he was, he was, he was at home and he was working for most of the day, and you know he writes a lot of stuff. He he does a lot of a lot of work from home for, at his computer, and he plugged his phone into the charger and then he was going to meet a friend for dinner. And he went downstairs, and he realized that he left his phone upstairs on the charger, but then at that moment he also realized that he was completely unreachable. Because his friend was being was was late, about ten minutes late picking him no. up, and while he was downstairs waiting, then he realized like nobody can call me, nobody can get a hold of me at all, and I'm standing right outside of my apartment. Yeah, so cool. yeah, and that's what he like for that. He said for that ten minutes, it was the most freeing moment of his life. Yeah. and I kind of feel like the same thing. Like yeah. like I'm gonna go on a I'm gonna go on a vacation soon, and I'm not gonna take my phone. Well, like, I've even got to the point where, like, I'm texting. I'm like, oh, this is so mundane. Like, why can't we just talk in person? I don't know. Some uh, people I'd rather text. Uh, yeah, I guess so. But I, I don't talk to anybody I don't want to talk to. Yeah. You know, I, I, the only people who text me or call me, you, Hannah, Shelly. Yeah. That's about it. So that's, that's all you really need, and, and it's, yeah, it's like, I, anybody else? Uh, I guess some of my, my other family members. But, uh, like, anybody nah. else? I'd rather just talk to I I'd... I'd rather talk to you in person. If we had yeah. a long text conversation, I'd be like, dude, I'll just meet you at the house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, can, we can do this a whole lot quicker. <laughs> yeah. This is bullshit. I'm, I'm having to t- talk into my phone now. I don't like my phone doesn't have buttons. And my fingers yeah. are big. I'm a big fella. And I, I don't like that I misspell every goddamn thing <laughs> on my phone. I noticed that uh, that I started using the predictive text on my phone as a crutch, and then I've been misspelling stuff like on Facebook, and I'm like, oh, man, I really need to uh, – I should watch that because – I orate all my texts now. That's, a, that's, that's pretty good. Yeah. That's a good idea. People got – you know the, the recent uh, Facebook Messenger app yeah. uh, controversy? Uh, I haven't really read too much into it, but it's like – in the fine print, it says that they can they can take access of your microphone and your camera and your photos and Apple does all that shit. Like, Apple, yeah, Apple well, already does all that. That was my point. It was like yeah. people are like worried about their privacy, and it's like this is all shit that you already gave yeah. to Facebook. You just have to also give it to Messenger yeah. so that you can talk to text and so that it can you can send pictures to people. Watch and the so that you can video chat with people. Yeah. 
It's, watch, watch the documentary Terms May Apply or Terms and Conditions or something. It's on Netflix. You know what I found out? Uh, that Australians don't call it Terms and Conditions. They, they just it? refer to it as T's and C's. T's and C's. Which is the classiest thing I've ever heard. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, not the classiest thing I've ever heard. It's close. To, it's one of the classiest things <laughs> I've ever heard. T's and C's. Let's just call it the T's and C's. T's and C's. Yeah, yeah. well, T's and C's. Uh, apparently, if you took time Terms to read all of the apply. T's and C's... Like, if you signed up for Facebook, Twitter, and, like, Instagram in it's one like day, a, you'd take, like, like a week. Months. Yeah, you'd take, like, a week a off week. of... Uh, just reading. Just reading terms and conditions. Fuck. Yeah. Um, not, not to mention understanding. And it's kind of crazy because if you agree to it, you could agree to, uh, like, like, without reading, you could agree to giving away your liver. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and pretty much that, as far as the... Um, like it's legally binding. Yeah, it's almost like a contract yeah. where that's that's something that you know. Well, fuck. Why did you agree to it? Yeah. Well, I'm not gonna spend all the time to read that. Well, yeah. then why did you agree to it? Alex and Anthony are the Angry Beards. <laughs> you can check out their podcast uh, at their home site where they're lurking right now at angrybeardspod.libsyn.com. Probably also where all the uh, the best podcasts are, are streaming and downloading from. So check out those locations. So I just gave you the download on the dollop back before we played the Angry Beards. Uh, and I mentioned that Dave Anthony is now joined by Gareth Reynolds on the dollop. He started out doing it solo. Tyson clipped this bit from Epi 18, where they're discussing famous French serial imposter Frederick Pierre Bourdon, also known as the Chameleon. Uh, this one starts in France. We oui. <laughs> say so. <laughs> <laughs> On June 13, 1974, Frédéric Pierre Baudin was born. He was the illegitimate son of Ghislain Baudin, who was 18. I already love the wrinkle in this one. Where you, how many names do you have to pronounce? It's really it's a fucking nightmare. This is like my personal hell. <laughs> I, I, I'm so glad we found that up top. <laughs> I actually just eliminated some of the names. Yeah, sure. I, like, like, no, fuck, you don't need the shopkeeper. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, she was 18 and poor when she gave birth. The father was married to someone else, so she ran off and had the kid alone. Okay. Mom liked to drink sure. and dance and stay out at night. She didn't want to have anything to do with her kid. She raised Frederick until he was two and a half when child services intervened. At that point, mothering's done. Yep. The work's over. They're formed. Indeed. No, they are. Two and a half. Two and a half, yeah. A lot of shit's happened. Yeah. It's called imprinting. They smoke in France at that age. Yeah. They yep. start smoking at two. Frederick says that his mother had a dire need for attention. Okay. And on rare occasions that he did see her... She would feign being deathly ill and make him run to get help. So, so, so when her kid was around, so she would fall over and go, "Oh God, I'm dying! Help again!" And he would run to get people. Well, so it's a classic mother-son relationship. I know that it is gonna; it won't affect him. No. How was stuff like that never creeps up? Like, no, no, that's just something. It's fine. It's totally fine. It's there's fine. No, there's no way that's going to affect this person. It's fine to do that. And that's the end of the story. Oh man, I knew it'd be fine. <laughs> I knew it would be fine. I just had a feeling everything would be fine, fine, fine. Okay, so 
When he was five, he uh, moved in with his grandparents. So wait, this is before he was five that this shit was happening? Yeah. Oh, my God. And then I'm sure after, yeah. right? Because if he was with the grandparents, I'm sure that she kept doing it. Mom's going to come by today to pretend to be dead for a little while. Are you excited? <laughs> Frederick, get your weeping clothes. Go get your kerchief. You're going to be weeping today. So what she's doing is she realizes that she's completely fucked this kid over. So when she sees him, she's so emotionally distraught that she can't handle the emotion of right. having fucked over another, a human being that yeah. came out of her. So she falls over and acts like she's dying. That's a good plan B. And then he runs off. That's so fair. she's got it all worked out. Yeah. No, that's fine. That's a good audible. <sighs> yep. He was uh, part Algerian. His dad was Algerian. Uh, and without a dad in the village, he became the village outcast. Cool. Because out, they, they have a huge Algerian problem in France. Right. They're, they're, they're yeah, yeah. not treated well. In school, he began to tell fabulous stories about himself. Mm. He said that his father was never around because he was a British secret agent. Yeah. Shh. Don't tell anyone else, though. <laughs> He'll be so pissed if he knows that I'm using this to show and tell. And everyone was like, yeah, okay. Uh -huh. Yeah. No, I can tell because you're Algerian. Yeah, and your mom almost died 30 times last month. <laughs> he increasingly misbehaved, acting out in class and stealing from neighbors. At 12, he was sent to live in a private facility for juveniles. So the mm. worm has turned. Yeah. I, I don't feel good about his future. Oh, you don't? No. Well, I'm filled with pessimism. The glass is totally empty. Bourdine often pretended to be am an amnesiac, <laughs> intentionally getting lost on the streets. So he would just walk out and be like, I don't know who I am. Excuse me? Excuse me? Where I uh, fell off a boat yesterday. Hello? I just rolled up to shore. I had the bread. Do you know who I am? Uh, help me. I don't <laughs> know. Yeah, so what is... So, okay, that's the setup. What's the next part? What's the benefit of the amnesia bit? In 1990, after he turned 16, Bourdin hitchhiked to Paris, where, scared and hungry, he approached a police officer and told him that he was a lost British teen named Jimmy Sale. Hello, I am Jimmy Sale. How are you? <laughs> I'm British. <laughs> uh, I like the crumpet. I have uh, two normal parents. And I just I forgot uh, where I am. Uh, please feed me and close me. I would like to go back to uh, London. Uh, my mother never pretended to die. Please have me. Dave Anthony is so much more than just walking the room. Did you guys catch him on Marin this season? Funny guy. And then there's Gareth Reynolds, who's done stuff on Comedy Central, Philosophy on MTV, and he was also in the Harold and Kumar number three movie. You can find more at thedollop.libson.com, and of course all those other podcast outerly places too. We've got the tweet sack coming up, and then my interview with W. Kamau Bell. Now it's time for a word from our sponsor with their newest and timely offer. Hello, friends. Bill Haywatt here. You know, with the summer winding down and the days getting shorter, it's a sure sign that it's back to school time. While kids might be grumbling that their fun is about to end, they can still be having a great time when they hit those hallowed halls in their new Hendersons back to school pants. Far from being too cool for school, Hendersons back to school pants are just right regardless 
regardless of whether your offspring is star of the football team or a wimpy loser who gets beaten up by the bike racks every day after class. <laughs> On the advice of counsel, Henderson's Pants wants to assure listeners of this program that we do not tolerate nor support bullying in our nation's schools or playgrounds. The childhood spectrum illustrated in this commercial message is not intended to denigrate or mock those children who might be seen as being of lesser ability or popularity than other more desirable young people. We invite opposing views to contact the management of Henderson's Pants via this program. We now return to the commercial, already in progress. Bill? Thank you, Joe. Originally designed for private school, public school, and that school of hard knocks, Henderson's Back to School Pants can be found in the aisles next to peachy folders, pencil boxes, and small calendars firearms wherever back-to-school supplies are sold. That's Henderson's, makers of knickers and knee pants since 1917. And now back to Succotash. Thank you, Bill Haywatt. More about Bill in just a moment. Let's scrounge around in the tweet sack momentarily, and then it's off to the interview. This past week, I reviewed more stories with Jay Moore and his guest, Adam Ferrara. For both Splitsider.com and also Huffington Post, I got a nice thank you tweet from Adam for the review. Never expect those sort of things when I put something out there, but it's nice when it happens. Got a direct message from Chris Lanuti over at the Broadcast Basement Podcast asking if I wanted in on the Podcast Fantasy Football League again that he runs. You might remember last year, I managed to not understand my way into second place in the league, right behind Chris, as a matter of fact. Chalking it up to beginner's luck, I didn't want to risk losing face, so I have passed for this year. Also, I still don't understand it or enjoy it all all that much, but thanks for inviting me, Chris. But I did say that I would report on the standings this year, so keep me up on what's going on. A message came in on Facebook this week from Davian Dent of The Bitter Sound and the Strange Times podcast's Both of them. He's on both of them. He was asking if I put together any special plans for our upcoming 100th episode of Succotash. Now, I have been thinking about it, but I'm not sure I have the time or the funds to do what I wanted to do, which was a big live blowout at the Throckmorton Theater. Get a bunch of the local podcasters to drop in, get some guys and gals like Davian or Travis and Brandy Clark from Tiny Odd Conversations to do a live Skype hookup. Maybe even get our associate producer, Tyson Saner, our engineer producer, Joe Polino, and even Bill Haywatt involved somehow. They're all game to do it. I just have to somehow pull it together. And let's be honest, the donate button on our SuckAtashShow.com website hasn't actually been clicked up a storm. But we'll see. Don't bother your pretty little heads about it. I'll figure something out. Nick Revel from the No Pressure to Be Funny podcast, who was our guest two episodes ago, sent me a recording of his new one-man show that he did during the Fringe Festival in Edinburgh last month. I have not had a chance to listen to it yet, but we will feature a clip of that in an upcoming episode. And I have spoken with Bill Haywatt, as I mentioned, our booth announcer, because he's been busy whipping up some alcoholic libations and wants to get back around the Studio P wet bar to pre-record several new Boozin' with Bill segments for upcoming episodes of Succotash. So that's very exciting and should happen very soon. Now it's time for the litany of fine folks who've been kind enough to tweet, retweet, mention, direct message, or follow us on Twitter in the past couple of weeks. Angela Gombe, Hillbilly Nerd Talk, John Dredge, Ella James, Doug Ellen, Reddit Comedy, Robert Palacios, Rio Kuzura, two DJ Beat Tweets, 
Grumpy Cat Minds, Dave Nelson, Talking Rubbish Podcast, Amish Baby Machine, Jerry Ferrara, Aaron O'Connor, Bob Zaney, David Hatton, Peaches and Hot Sauce, Wasis Miller, Barrel House Red, Podcast Whore, Kaylee Chaos, Ms. J.D. Foe, Sibling Rivalry, Jabs from the D-Head Factor, who's looking very svelte these days. Uh, he's really been running and working out, and I don't know what he's been up to, but he's looking good. Uh, Jessica Delfino, Eric Furness, Pod Cheese, Dana Carvey, Van Full of Candy, Brit in the American, Young Funk, Attaboy Clarence, TOH47037, <laughs> Madeline Moon, Sky All Violet, Straight to Your Head, Man by Cow, Broken Filter Live Show, Salty Language Podcast, Matt and Corey Talk Too Much, Gabriel Diani, Diani and Divine, Conrad and Jack Show, Stitcher, yeah, Stitcher mentioned us, Tur- uh, Turk Reno, Beth Zell, Devin Rosney, Lisa C., Pure BS Podcast, Corey Epps, What a Pair of Trousers, Oz Podcasts, St. Paul Rocket City, Sam's the Geek, Angels Freak 7, Wiretech Girl, Talk Nerdy to Me, In Session Film, Tom Mayhew, Good Underscore Podcasts, Illusionoid, Nug Nargang, the best name in podcasting, Colin Mockery, Bad Dog Theater, Barker Podcasts, Davian Dent, Gormless Mook, <laughs> Phil Lairness, The Angry Ginger, Brad and Brit, Kenny Stevenson, Christian George, Tom Robinson, Bird Dog 61, Savoring Sweet, Ubiquitous Bee Dog, Timothy Pizza, Peter Baisley, Sean Cullen, Sideshow Network, Adam Ferrara, Skillet Face Funnies, John Jaro Palizio, Children Car Seat, Luke AZ, Aaron May, The Real Kaylee Bolduck, Mike Sotrans, Broadcast Basement, The Podcast Digest, Nat Packer Diana, Robin Rudd, Valentine Santiago, and Jenny Podcaster. There's the tweet sack for now. Mention at Succotash Show in your tweet or tweet to us directly with your questions, comments, and suggestions for comedy podcasts for us to feature on the show. I'll also read emails in the tweet section too, so you can send along notes, clips, and pics to Mark, M A R C, at SuccotashShow.com. As W. Kamau Bell and I mentioned in the interview you're about to hear, we've known each other through the San Francisco comedy scene for quite a while. But uh, for most of that time, we really didn't hang out or do anything. Just kind of knew each other, said, hey, how you doing? But back about eight years ago, I was producing a pilot for a comedy video series for Crackle, which Sony had just launched. It was an internet channel at the time that they were encouraging original productions. And uh, they paid me to do a pilot. So Kamau was one of my three principal actors, along with Shane Elliott and Dana Eagle. The plug got pulled, however, but the show before the show was finished, and the pilot never got online. But I actually still have a sort of produced version of it. Uh, It doesn't quite have credits, so I'm going to try and slap some credits on it and put it up on the blog for this episode at the SuccotashShow.com home site, so you can check that out. But in the meantime, here's my interview with Kamal, held a couple of weeks ago now at his home in Berkeley. I am talking to W. Kamal Bell in his new home in Berkeley, California. Welcome to Suckatash. 
Thank you for having me, Mark. It's good to be on. We've it, tried to do this for seems like for <laughs> it, for many years. It but, has been a while. Yes, and uh, I'm glad you gave up your show to come back here and do the. I uh, did. It was interview. important to me. The, you know, when <laughs> FX said we'd like to get you to continue, I said no. I have to get back to the Bay and record Suckatash with Mark. I just, we can't continue anymore. Yes. Well, I got to tell you, it's so funny because we've known each other for a number of years, uh, kind of peripherally through yeah, the comedy just scene, through being in the same scene at the same time, um, and then. Uh, I did cast you in a classic video, yes, yes, which, uh, <laughs> which, uh, which has, we just I just screened for the first time. Finally, years later, I finally uh, got to see the final cut of Spam Busters. Yes, yeah, Spam Busters. And after I saw my acting, I was like, "Oh, this is why it didn't make it off the uh, <laughs> the digital shelf." They were like, "Oh, so well, we can CGI out this guy." Uh, no, you were great. You were great, and it was a casting job where you didn't have to audition. I said, "I know who I want that's, for this part." That was you're right. That's uh, that's that was good. That's I remember right. that. And Dana Eagle, who was in this season. Uh, uh, last comic standing. Yeah, you you were uh, you you were picking the. Uh, <laughs> I have an eye for the talent. You have an eye for the talent. And then Shane Elliott, who uh, has done a number of commercials in L.A. He's currently, I think, taking a little break at his uh, back home at his parents' house. Um, I think back in Michigan for a little while, but mm-hmm. uh, he had a really great co- commercial career going for a while and some little bit parts and stuff. Those, so. those guys, those people who can get in commercials. It's, I know I couldn't do it. <laughs> for many reasons but if you can break that hustle yeah that is a hustle that keeps on hustle it's like it starts to just like you see somebody in a commercial and then you see them in every commercial i tried it for a while down yeah. in la and it was just so i remember i went to, into audition as a a young dad mm-hmm. for something an insurance commercial or something they had like a little kid who was one of the kids in the commercial and i I went to pick him up, and I didn't even know how to pick, yeah. pick up <laughs> a pick truck. Up a kid, yeah. And I pick him up, and the woman goes, "Stop, stop!" The cast goes, "You've never picked up a child, ah. have you?" <laughs> so, uh, goodbye. You have you have him by his ankles upside down. Yeah, isn't yes. that what you're supposed what to do? do? Yeah. Um, anyway, it's great to see you. It's great to have you back. Yeah, it's good to be back. It's uh, you know, I kind of feel like I, this is the equivalent of me going back to my parents' house. It's coming back to the Bay Area and really hitting the reset button. Yeah. Go, All right, let's yeah. do this again. Um, but I do have to say, when uh, when you got your show on FX, there was a, a certain sense of sort of hometown pride seeing you do that show, um, and uh, I really dug it. I thought it was great, and I, you know, my, in fact, I told my listeners this in the last episode because I teased it I was going to be talking to you or hope to talk to you, um, that I think they really made a mistake bouncing your show to fxx and and stripping you out to five nights a week yeah no that's that's the conventional wisdom by that i mean people who comment on internet things uh seem to that seems to be yeah that if we'd stayed once a week i mean i think because i was new to the, the tv process a lot of people who worked on the show were a lot of the writers were new and a lot of even the people who worked on the show who had jobs before had never that shit it was hard to tell people what that show was going to be before we were doing it. Yeah. And it was like six shows in that a lot of the crew went, oh, okay, all right, all right, all right, <laughs> yeah, all right. Yeah, yeah. And then once people got it on the crew, they got it. But it was like hard to sort of go like the Daily Show, but not like the Daily Show, but like the Daily Show, <laughs> <laughs> but not like the Daily Show. So, and also for me, I hadn't done it before, so it was hard for me to put into words. And it was like... It was like I really was a need to show people. But then we were once a week, and from my, what I understand, we were doing great, fine. We were doing well, and they brought us back. And yeah, because you got the first. The yeah, first we got s- we got six, we got seven, and then right away they picked us up for another six, which they weren't supposed to do that. So yeah, they were just they just wanted to roll right into the next six, and it was at the it's just a 
a weird point in, you know, Russell Brand also had his talk That's show. That's right. So there was just sense. Some people were like, you're not competing with Russell Brand. I'm like, I know I'm not because that would not be a competition anyone would have. <laughs> like, if you like Russell Brand, go get Russell Brand. That's right. You know, this yeah. Is not, we're not Apples and oranges. Thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so when they said, and we'll get back to the show, but I'm just curious when they, when the decision was made, hey, we're going to. Get, oh, we don't have to get back to the show because I'll never get back to the show. Oh, <laughs> oh. Nah, but so. just that decision yeah. to go to five nights a week and move you to a channel that was brand new yeah. that I literally, it wasn't on my cable system. I yeah. couldn't even watch it. I, I heard from people all the time about like either it's not on my cable system or I have to pay extra to get it on my cable system and you're not worth $30 a month. <laughs> that, that's what the extra X was for, yeah, I guess. Yeah, it was just like I couldn't, how am I going to argue with people like that? And so, yeah, it became... It's just that thing where you, when you make something new, also hard to get. Like yes. It's just, like it's just, it's two, yeah. two great tastes that don't go great yeah. together. Don't you see where it's snob appeal. Yeah, Kamal, yeah, yeah. it's snob yeah. appeal. And we're it, only going to get the best of the best watching the best your show. We're the best audience. And it just, I think, you know, at FX, we were sort of in the middle of a lot of other things. So yeah. there was not really, the onus was not on our show to lead the thing but suddenly i was on a network where i was supposed to be sort of leading the network and it was like but if you looked at the other programming in the network it wasn't i wasn't like-minded with that programming so yes. it was like you know it's you're the you're leading this <laughs> network you lead those mad about reruns right into the future <laughs> like, it's just like you know nothing gets mad about you reruns but it was i could understand if you were watching paul reiser's face from the 90s and then yes a black guy's head came on yelling about the news of the day you might be like ah, it's, that's enough i don't need i'm ready to move on so yeah it was just a you know, if there's anything about it that feels sort of, it's just knowing that it became like a, it was like, it was an experiment. Yeah. And now FXX is experimenting with running every Simpsons rerun ever. Yes. Which I feel like that will probably work. <laughs> what do you got to lose? Yeah, yeah, you, yeah, own, yeah, you, know, you own the package. You already know that they that the Simpsons <laughs> have been on for 25 years and it has worked for 25 years. Yes. So. And, and uh, people that are a brilliant yellow hue apparently draw an audience. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, they also, they, you know, they... My show got canceled. Uh, 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 I, can't, I can't remember the comedian's name. Uh, Australian comedian. He had a show on FX called Legit. Jim Jeffries. Oh, Jim Jeffries. Jim Jeffries yeah. show got canceled. Yeah. And and so there was a sense for me that like the network just hasn't. Yeah, they just in and of itself. I certainly feel like ultimately the, the I take the blame. I could have done better. I sh- could have figured. I could have learned faster. <laughs> but. Uh, well, that's all right, yeah. but let's, I mean, let's yeah. let us turn back the, the, the clock a little bit and find out how, I mean, because it's still an amazing break to get, I think, yeah. to be given your own show, right? Yes. So you started doing uh, stand-up in San Francisco, right? I mean, that was your first stand-up time? Yeah, I mean, I, I moved here from Chicago, and I'd done a little bit in Chicago, but it was really, at the, the point I was in Chicago, the scene was really at its absolute depth. The Like, all, there's only one club in town, which oh, was really? Zanies. Like, there had been, like, the funny firm and the improv and... And all sorts of other, you know, it's like, it was like yeah, San one nighters yeah. and yeah. But when I, when I sort of started poking my head around comedy, the improv closed, the funny forum closed and there was just zanies and zanies had the 15 comedians it needed. <laughs> it yeah. Was, so trying to break so in, there was no new talent night. There was no, really, you could get a guess up, but you really had to like push to get a guess at, but then there was no thing that happened after that. Like, and you it's got re- your guess set. And then it's, it's really an improv sketch town. Yeah. Right? yeah. I mean, and it was really, it was really at that point known for. And I took, I was taking classes at Second City, and whenever the subject of stand-up came up, it was always in a sort of like, well, we don't do stand-up. Of or course not. If you're on no. stage, people are on stage trying to be funny, clearly, it was like, we don't do stand-up here. Yeah, please, yeah, please. Yeah. We're, the, we're real. Play we're the real. game. 
Yeah, please. And and so so how old were you when you made the the jump to San Francisco? I was twenty four. And what what prompted you to go to that market? Uh, I had visited. I well, two things. One, I had visited. I it was real. I was a. F- I'm a fan of things before I had started to do those things. So I was a fan of stand-up before. And I was a fan of the history of stand-up. Mm-hmm. So I had read about San Francisco as being a comedy town and sort of knew the history of San Francisco from the comedy perspective. And so it sounded like a place where I would think I would want to be. You know what I mean? Like it just yes. seemed like it was like, a, it was also, I don't know. I don't know what it was. It just sounded more open than other scenes. And so then I went, it was either going to be New York or San Francisco. And I went to New York. And it was the first time I'd ever really visited New York as a as an adult, and I was like, "No, this is <laughs> this is too loud. <laughs> yeah. People are yelling," and it just felt like it just felt too fast. And so then I came to San Francisco, and it was the, at the perfect whatever the, whatever the BPM of the Bay Area is. Yeah. is I feel like is me. And what like year was that? Ninety-seven. Okay, yeah. so it we had gone through the the comedy boom yes. of the eighties and yes. early nineties. We had gone through the comedy crash and when it was just beginning to kind of come back up out of the mire I mean, a little I, bit. I, right. I would, from my perspective, we were still in the, okay. <laughs> like me and Kevin Avery talk about this all the time. That like when we started, we were, when we started, it was after the boom, it was firmly after the boom. And when I got here, all the comedians that people talk about had left town. Okay. Cat had just left. Yeah. Uh, like, like, uh, you know, Brian Posehn, yeah. Brian Capatch, like everybody, uh, uh, like everybody who is talked about now in sort of alt comedy as yes. the leading lights had all just split town. That's right. They all headed to LA. Yeah. Uh, Victor, what's his last name? Victor. Uh, I'm, it's like, the, uh, I'm it's tired. I'm tired. The black guy <laughs> writes for Louis C.K. I, gosh, I don't, anyway, you know, it's because uh, I was in LA. No, Vernon Chapman. Burnt, okay, yeah, because so, I, I was in L.A. It's funny because when you first moved here, I had been in L.A. Yeah. Uh, trying to produce a TV show, and I missed a bunch of those guys. I mean, I knew Patton because he had just gotten here just as I was leaving yeah. to go to L.A. Yeah. Uh, but people like Brian Pussain and whatnot, they all started kind of coming up. Yeah. I had left. Yeah. And so I came back, and they went, oh, yeah, there's all this great stuff going on. I go, yeah. what are you talking about? No, man? no, it was – I had so I felt like uh, Aisha Tyler had moved, and I mean <laughs> – and so there's all these people who now we talk about it. It's like, well, these are the people. Yes. And they had just left. And so uh, when, I, when I got to town, and also me and Kevin talk about this, there was no, who's another comedian, San Francisco comedian, there was no internet yet as far as like have your own website and create your own That's brand. Right. And, and so we were just sort of showing up to the punch on a Sunday night doing seven minutes. But the industry wasn't here anymore. Right, <laughs> so right. Like, so we were just all like waiting once a year for the Montreal audition. And yeah. Like, if I don't get this, I got to wait for another year. And, and then, of course, there was the comedy competition. Yeah, the comedy competition, which again was <laughs> certainly, I don't know. I think the depths of the comedy competition are still ahead of us, but uh, <laughs> uh, from what I understand. But yeah, there was just no, you were just sort of, it was the Montreal audition was the thing that you had to hope you got. Hmm. And every year for a while, nobody went. Like there wow. was just this period where nobody went and it just felt yeah. like that nothing, that there was, there was just no, there was, it didn't seem possible to break out of San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Cause I, I had come back and you know, I was running the, the Riffington's yes, improv group yes. on Monday nights at Cobbs and the cannery. Yeah. And it was, it, it, it all, it's, it kind of felt the conversation at that time kind of felt like it did almost like in the early eighties where it was just kind of some small clubs. Yeah. There were still before Cobbs got bought, they were there were still that competition between Cobbs and the Punchline. You mm-hmm. couldn't play one or the other. Yes, that that was that. Yeah, the weird. Uh... But the stuff. But you know, the zoo was gone. The other cafe was gone. Yeah. See, all those things were just folk tales. To yes. Me. Like they were just. There was no sense of like that though. That 
that that era was ever going to return. And I mean, the scene was really so. There were people here. There were great comics here, but it was not the. But even but it felt like the comics who were here were the ones who had said he decided not to do L.A. Right. So there was no sense that they were going anywhere either. So you're like, until somebody kills a guy Obelum, <laughs> I am not going to be able to move up at the punchline. <laughs> so, so, so you move here from Chicago yeah. to pursue this career, and you can get stage time. I'm right. Yeah. I mean, there's there's places. Yeah. No, to there go. was a there was you know I I was sort of got I was lucky because I'd come out here to visit, and somehow, and I don't even know. I think when I think about this, it's like I don't know how that happened. I met Gene Pompa, the Monday Night Showcase at Cobb's. Okay. Gene's a great comedian. Yeah. I went up to him after the show. He had hosted the show. I said, I have seen you on the A-list. Like, I was excited because you were, you're a comic who's been on television. Yeah. I think that gave Gene a sense of like, oh, I'm, this guy likes me. Hey, I'm, I'm somebody. A little, a little famous. And so I said, he's like, I'm a comic, da, 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 which I was half a comic. I was not. <laughs> and he said, call Jeff Wills at the punchline and tell him that I recommended you and he'll get you a set. Which to me now sounds like none of that's going to happen. Jeff's not going to answer his phone. <laughs> like, right. know, like, I don't right. think I can get Jeff on the phone right now. You know what I mean? Like, right. uh, uh, I mean, he might call me back, but it was like <laughs> that's what I did. I called Jeff Wills, who was the Booker of the Punch, yes. and I said, "Gene Pompa said I could get a set." Jeff, some reason, said okay. I did a set on an early show on a Saturday night, which that's not a guest set time, right? Like, and and it was uh, Sue Murphy was headlining, Colossal's Rocky was featuring. And Tony Dionco was doing his first opening. Wow. Punchline. Okay. Uh, and and I did a guest set. And, you know, it went well, but it went well based on just sort of like whatever beginner's luck is. Like, you know, just like I just sort of did well, early, early show Saturday, too. Yeah, I it's mean, early it's, show it's, Saturday. It's, so the, the crowd is just like everything's funny. We yeah. All, this is the show we've been waiting for all week. Yeah. Uh, it's packed in here. It feels good. Sure. Whatever. <laughs> black guy. <laughs> so, I mean. You know, I felt like when I moved here, all the jokes I thought I had, I, you know, I took them out when I got here. Like, remember those jokes I did first show Saturday? And the crowd's yep. like, nah, yeah, those aren't. That's not interested. Thank only you. Only on first show Saturday will those jokes work, sir. <laughs> so, yeah, I got to guess. And that was part of the reasons that I moved here because I moved out here. And it was like when I visited, I felt like, oh, I'll just come down here and take this town over in about three weeks. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> not quite. But I did get a lot of stage time because I just there was a Sunday nights of the punchline. You could get up. I definitely had to break through at Cobbs. But. The thing about San Francisco that is people, San Francisco comics, and I don't know how it is now to be a beginner here because there's so many more comedians who start. There's just, yes. It's just crazy how many how many new comedians there are in the city. But back then there was probably like 30. You know, it just felt yeah. like it was like a small group. And unlike other cities, there's a process to how you get on. With the punch on it, it was like just keep showing up on Sundays and eventually you'll get on. If you don't do well, it'll take longer for you to get on. But if you do well, we'll start putting you on. Whereas in some cities, it doesn't it doesn't matter how long you show up in the back of the club. They're just yeah. not going to put you on. It just doesn't. There's no slot there's for no you. Sli- there's no rotation. And, yeah. And then Cobbs, it was like, hang out here a lot. Like, <laughs> be, just be a fixture here. Yes. And occasionally, you know, there was a thing where they're like, can co- we need comics to come down and sand the chairs. <laughs> <laughs> so Cobbs was always on some uh, Mr. Miyagi type of, uh, of Ralph Macchi. Sand on, sand on. Yeah, and so I was like, I remember seeing the sign for that, and I had to come from Oakland, didn't have a car, and the bar didn't go to Cobbs. So it was going to be a real hassle to get yeah. to Oakland here. And I was like, is that really a thing? And I remember sort of like, I have to do it. And so yeah. I came all the way across the bridge and got there. Sand and chairs. And, and there were two other comics there who were certainly ahead of me on the tour, like uh, Joe Rocha and Dan Lewis. And I was like, well, if they're here, this is a real thing. And I sanded chairs. And I, I don't know if that's how I got my first set, but that was how I got in. So that was sort of regularly. Yeah. I mean, you know, Joe Klosik and uh, Tony Gianco, they both 
basically were forced to be in my improv group by Tom. Yeah, yes. Because we were, sometimes some of our improvisers couldn't make it, so Joe became an improviser yes. because it got him stage time. Yes, and Joe was always, <laughs> I'm sure still is, is quick on his feet with the crowd. He is, so, he know. is, and he also still apparently has some sort of rib damage from something Tom did to him <laughs> on stage one night. <laughs> I'm sure Tom claims it was an accident. Of course, yeah, yeah. of course. Um, now, you, you mentioned earlier that you, uh, you were a, a fan of comedy and comedy history. Um, what um, comics do you really point to as being influences? I mean, it's sort of, I think about it by different eras in my life because as a, before I got into comedy, like, you know, I remember watching uh, Bill Cosby himself on VHS. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember watching Eddie Murphy Delirious on VHS. I remember seeing Eddie Murphy Raw in the theater, even though I was, you know, I was too young to see it, but my mom took me. Uh, <laughs> so Bill Cosby and Eddie Murphy were certainly like, I mean, Eddie Murphy seemed like he was the same age as me, you know, like, even though he's much older, but like he was 19 on Saturday Night Live. Yeah, like, yeah. Huge SNL fan. Uh, but as far as stand-up comics, Bill Cosby and Eddie Murphy when I was a kid were the two. Like, I just thought there was, you can't, that, that's how it works. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, with, and so, and then... When I started doing comedy, and I was a, one of those people who the boom of the '80s was right at the time I was watching TV. Like it was like so all the like A list, two drink minimum, Showtime's comedy on the road, yeah, a, evening at the Improv, Caroline comedy. I was like, yes, just keep it coming. Just all uh, you know. I feel like I was part of killing the boom. Yeah, I was gonna say you're yeah. part of the reason people stopped going. Exactly, out. <laughs> but I was of course twelve at the time. Of course, so. you couldn't get into those clubs anyway. Yeah, but uh, that I was really just like consumed a lot. So like. You know, that there's comics that I love. Like, I'm like, whatever happened to Jan Carum? You know, like, yeah. comics who I'm like, that were fixtures of part yeah. of my life at that point. But, you know. She's opening for Dana Carvey now. Oh, really? Yeah, That's a funny. lot down I in feel L.A. Like if I was to meet her, I would be a little bit tongue-tied. Because she's okay. one of those comics that I was like, I saw you on <laughs> Young Comedian Special. Oh, she'll be flattered to hear that. Yeah, no, there's just those comics <laughs> that you, that didn't for, didn't become household names. But as a kid who was watching TV, watching comedy a lot, you know, you become... Uh, every now and again, I'll Google comics. I'm like, whatever happened to Joe Bolster? You know what I yeah. mean? Like, you know, yeah, the, yeah. Comedy Central. He was the host of that show they had. Uh, and it's funny, you know, if you can't manage to catch them now, they're they're still solid acts. Yeah. You know, a lot of them keep doing it, yeah. and they're not even road comics. They just have their clubs that they go to and they do their time mm -hmm. and whatnot. How did your uh, material evolve? I mean, so you're in you're in the San Francisco comedy scene, and and what do you have to kind of rub up against to kind of sharpen your tools, so to speak? Uh, you know, San Francisco gets a lot of credit for, uh, you know, you're like LA, like when people when you go to another town and you say you're from San Francisco, they're sort of like, oh, a San Francisco comedian. Like, there's a lot of credit for our uh, intelligence and weirdness, which I think sometimes we get too much credit for both. <laughs> like, I think we're like, yeah. you know, if you go to the punchline on a Sunday night, those comics could play any club. A lot of those could play. They don't look like, oh, that's a San Francisco yeah, comic. Yeah, not but anymore. Not anymore. Yeah, no, I certainly, no, you know. I, I remember I, the auditions for the, uh, when I was helping to produce the comedy competition back in the 80s. Yes. Uh, there were some people that you just go, how did this fuck get out? <laughs> Do you remember Raleigh Moe? No. Was he still around? I think that was that was before my time. Oh my god. It's like this who is this dude? And you never saw him any other time of the year, but every year he would show up show to audition well, to get in. I do think there's a thing, I don't know if this is still in San Francisco, where when I was here, the open mic scene encouraged a lot of like people who were like 
there was that thing where you like you're a crazy person. <laughs> like, I don't mean that in a you're crazy. I don't mean yeah. zany. Like you're you're a person who is coming from a halfway house. Yes. To, to and this is the thing. Nobody can stop you from signing up at an open mic. I feel but, like that there's just nobody ever tells somebody not to sign up at an open stand up mic. So you can come here yes. and just yeah. once a week. Yeah, we, be be warm for twenty minutes. Yes, and and, and those comics <laughs> you start to see you see on the scene like they are going to all the same shows you're doing, but you're like, I don't think we're doing this for the same reasons. <laughs> <laughs> and then some of those comics end up at the punchline on Sundays, sort of like waiting yeah. for their set, and it's like, yeah, you have to sort of tell like like Molly or, or Hutch like that's not really. A, it's not, not, really a not really but a comic. those comics would sometimes get on because they were there for six months in the back of the club. And, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think the real thing about San Francisco, there was no. Uh, I think I feel like Joe Close, like I think said Mike Meehan said this. You feel like you're it's like a triple A ball club mm-hmm. where you can kind of you're in the pros, but you're sort of but you're not in the bright light of scrutiny that you would be if you're in New York. That's interesting. Way, yeah. Which I felt like that way. So you could sort of do more. I felt like. Like even now going to New York, if I go up in New York, there's I really feel a sense of like I gotta be good, <laughs> you, know, like I gotta, you know. Even and maybe even more since the show. Whereas in San Francisco, even now, if I go up, I feel like I'll I can be I'll be good, but I can also sort of fuck around and figure some new stuff out. Right, right. You know, I, the audience will give me the latitude to like let's see if we can go down this dark hole and see what happens. So yeah, I mean, I think it's part of the charm that uh, you know Mark Pitta's gig at the Throckmorton has for people that. You know, um, even people of Dana Carvey's stature enjoy going up there because the, he feels he can go out there with a pad of paper and mm-hmm. still work stuff out. Yes, yes. And not have to go, hey, here's my act. Yes, yes. And and I think that that part of San Francisco's reputation is still maintained. So, like, I mean, Sunday Night at the Punchline, you pretty much have to do the A shit, you know. Yeah. But then all the other little rooms around, you feel like you can sort of experiment. And, and I mean, everybody experiments at the level they want to, and some don't. But I really felt like... For me, it was about trying to turn as much stuff over and trying to. I always knew that there's like I was. It's almost like I. I, kinda, I guess I've had a sense that I need to get the bad jokes out so I can get to the good ones. <laughs> like, Eat your vegetables first. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, and I remember actually Tom Sawyer, and I don't know that I've ever told, had a big impact on my career when. There was one New Year's, like a January at the, uh, at the, when the old cops, not yeah. the old old cops, but the old the cannery. Cops. Yeah, the cannery. I was not a part of the old old cops at the marina, but yeah. Uh, so I say the old cops, and I realize some people were like, "Oh, you mean not on Chestnut?" No. no. Uh, the, yeah, the middle old the cops. Middle old cops. Yes, middle cops at middle <laughs> cops. Uh, one January, he was telling people, he's like, "Everybody's doing the same shit over and over again, and you need to turn shit over. You need to get to some new shit." He, he's like, "I tell comics to do new material, and they say." They're saying, I'm, do, I'm doing my A shit. And he's like, he was like, I tell him, you don't have A shit. If you have A shit, you'd be on HBO. <laughs> <laughs> and it really sort of was like, so do some good funny stuff at the top, funny stuff to close. In the middle, you're supposed to be doing new stuff. And it really like clicked like, oh, that's. And so Cobbs became a comedy club stage where you were allowed to do new shit. Whereas the punchline, you yeah. could, but nobody was sort of pushing you to. Yeah. The punchline yeah. wants you to get better. But they're not going to take a hand in that. They're just going to like, but Cobbs at that point really felt like a boutique. Yeah. I, you know, I think it's probably a reputation that some club managers cultivate, not not on purpose. But when I was running the Comedy Underground in Seattle, I felt the same way. Cause, mm-hmm. And it comes from this thing of I'm watching these same comics every week. Mm-hmm. And they sign up and they come in and they do the same five minutes. Yeah. It's like, not only is it no longer funny to me, because I watch it every week. Yeah. How is it funny to them yes. and how are they growing? And yeah. so I did the same thing Tom did. I would, I would say, 
you know, yeah, I'll sign you up again, but it's got to be different. You yeah. got to do something different. And I think that, you know, at that point, I think maybe it was due to the fact that there had been these amazing comics in the scene that had left. <laughs> and then the comics in the class I was, we weren't ready to catch them. We were like, yeah. we were sort of like, and I think Tom was like, Tired of watching these guys. Like, <laughs> come on, you need to step yeah. it up. You need to get to the yeah. patent Brian Fosane, Brian, you know, blank patch level of weirdness and, yeah, and originality. Yeah. And so it really lit a fire under me that I think that has probably stayed. And I feel like I'm always like, you have to get to the next thing. You can't yeah. just sit on the, you know, I've, of course, I've been guilty of holding jokes too long and jokes that are like, well, this one's still funny. Yeah. But it just really, the, the freedom to create at a club, I think, was a big deal. That I don't know any clubs in the country where that there's the where there's some clubs where the owner have involvement in what you're doing, but it's not good involvement. No, no. and certainly there are comics who would have different opinions of Tom Sawyer. Right? I, I would, I would agree. As <laughs> and, well, and, yeah. and many of them, I've heard their stories. I'm like, yeah, you got a point. Uh, but I was at the point where I was still moldable enough that there wasn't, you know, Tom never told me to do anything that I didn't feel like wasn't generally good advice. He never got specific with me. I sort of feel like. Like he used to have a thing called House MC, yeah. where like you know where you, if you got to a certain level, he would let you. He would get you a week of work for six months and then promote you to feature. And it oh, was like okay. the the thing that comics were all sort of battling yeah. for was to be the House MC. And during that week of work for six months or every week for six months, you would get uh, or was it for, I don't know how long it was, but it was over a period of time that you would. He was like pushing you to explore and try new things, and. The, I was battling for that. And okay. Part of it was trying to show Tom that I could, that I had more bits. And da, yeah. Da, 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 da. And I remember it, it was this weird thing. Think like now it's so funny to think like there was a point at which I somehow found out it was between me and Laura House. <laughs> and we were friends and we both did. I want you to get it, Laura. I want you to get it, Kamal. But we both wanted it. And, oh, that's uh, funny. And it was just the thing where, where and she got it. But then he told me, but it, you're going to get it next and then you're going to be a feature. And it was just this like... You, it's funny. It felt it felt important in a way. Yeah, that it seems sort of quaint now. You know, it felt it's like, almost like, it's almost like battling with somebody for a promotion at work. It's yes. like you know we have one manager job. Yes, and so you guys really have to kind of slug it out. Yeah, and 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 it was, but it also just made you know it made me a better comedian. And 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 it, it, it's not often you get to like at that level where you get to accomplish something where you get to yeah. like set a goal and and you know and I. And it was, you know, I'd been at it for a while, so it felt good to sort of achieve that house MC thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it sounds like, I mean, you fo you'd focused pretty hard on comedy from a pretty young age. Was there another ever another sort of career option where you were going? If that doesn't work out, I mean, it was. I mean, I guess it sounds like it was uh, from a young age, but it didn't. You know, I like I I dropped out of college. Because I was in college at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, I was an East Asian Studies major. Wow, okay, uh, <laughs> interesting. In name only, uh, <laughs> I took a few classes. Was like this is way harder than I thought. Uh, and so when I went back to Chicago, it was just comedy was always that thing in the back of my head that I was like, that I like comedy, but I was never the guy who was the like the class clown. And so a little bit, I sort of t I think I talked myself out of it a lot because I was like, oh, okay. But then when I was, I was twenty, so I started relatively young at twenty one, but because. For whatever reasons, the scene of comics I started with in Chicago that I, when I started, I want to say none of them, maybe one or two are still working, but it was not, the scene was not, it's funny, Chicago's a great scene now, but I felt huh. like there was almost like we were just weeds, like there was no, there, we, there, <laughs> nobody was watering us, nobody was like, we were just not getting a lot of love and sunlight, yeah, yeah. and so I, there was a long time where I really was just sort of running in circles, and it wasn't until I came to San Francisco that it was like, 
I felt like, oh, the competition has gotten better, so yeah. I'm better. But no, there was, I mean, you know, uh, it's weird. It, I don't feel like I've been doing it a long time, but I have been doing it a long time. And it's been, it's just sort of, there was other, I was, there was other things I thought I would do. I was, uh, I was in high school, I was heavily into martial arts, which is what led to the East Asian Center. Oh, major. okay. So that I thought that that would somehow, I would open up a martial arts school or something. But there was never like a another job like i just went to college yeah. for east asian studies because i was like that's kind of like martial arts <laughs> yeah <laughs> but there was never another yeah there was never another thing now i think one of the the but i had a lot of jobs like because <laughs> yes. comedy did not pay me the, for a long time yeah so I, yeah i got a great resume miss any of them uh let's see ben and jerry uh, mm. if, if if working at a video store i worked at a video store for a while if that <laughs> job paid like I don't know a living wage. I would like where I could still live in this house. Yeah, <laughs> like, you know, that would work. Whatever that would be, I would I would work at a video store for the rest of my life. Interesting. Although they don't really exist in the city. No, that's anymore. true. Yeah. So, that's but that true. was a job where I was like, this you get to watch free movies. You you know, the hours are pretty good. Yeah. You know? So that was the job I I would like to start that up again. Um, I think one of the challenges that San Francisco trained comics face is when you f- go out there to meet audiences on the road. Yes. Um, because the not only are the comics sort of trying new things here, the audiences are uh, more forgiving mm-hmm. and even are sort of want to see yeah. that variation in what people have to offer. So, what was that like when you would get gigs out of town? You know, it's 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 funny. I feel like the hardest because you know I think because the thing about California that you realize when you live in California is that once you get a half hour outside of the city. It's Texas, you know, (laughs) like you don't have to go like it's way easier for me to go from here to Chicago and play a club, play Zanies than it is for me to play Modesto. Yeah. You know, like and so there was that thing where you would you would sort of develop your act and I'm chatting and I'm talking and and then you do these gigs where you feel like all the things you were talking about on stage suddenly sound like science fiction. (laughs) They don't sound like things that real people engage in and don't like they aren't things that people are thinking about. And so Modesto was always the gig that it was just like. Whatever it was a two nighter, which I feel like is worse than is worse than a one nighter. Should be better because it's too yes. much work. But you sort of like, w- for me, one night goes well and one night goes badly. Mm. So it's just like so. I always felt like if the Friday night went well, I'm like, oh, Saturday's gonna suck. Just the, <laughs> just the way it was. Yeah. And so Modesto, like I like, and usually what happened is like the fr- the Friday even the best night wasn't great. You know what I mean? It just like so the Friday night would be oh that was pretty good, but then you'd spend all I'd spend all day Saturday trying to like trying to write new bits that would fit that audience fit that and that would give me more time to do the bits that i had to do because i didn't have because that was the time i had and it's like yeah. i don't have other bits to go to so <laughs> maybe i'll put this bit further in the back so that i can <laughs> so you go to the it's that thing where you're in a town and you're at the movies and you're trying to oh this what's funny in this movie that i can tell talk about on stage later what's funny at the mall as i'm walking around what's funny at the hotel because you want to go on stage and go i was at the mall today do the local stuff to do something to give you time to get to the bit that you're going to do that yeah so it's certainly, you know, like it's funny because I, I was afraid the first time I went to Chicago to do like Zanies. I was like, oh, this is going to be like Modesto. It's like, oh, no, this is way <laughs> this is in some sense. Those gigs make Chicago easier because mm. like a town like a, like a major city outside of because that town wants comedy. 
and they don't have the uptightness that San Francisco has sometimes. Oh, interesting. So stuff that happens in San Francisco where the audience is like, mm. in Chicago, they're like, yeah, we don't care. Fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> the sensitivity is gone. Yeah. And so it makes uh, Kevin Avery, it's, it's again another baseball analogy. He was like, sometimes San Francisco, it's like you're swinging. It's like the thing where you ha- the, the batter has three bats. Yes. And so we're here with three bats. And you go to Chicago and it's like, they took the donut off. It's just yes. one bat. Like, you know, so. Oh, that's it's, funny. It's easier in that sense sometimes. But yeah, all those. It's I I used to notice it, and I mean, still much in a, some way. But I used to notice it go, the smaller the town, the more it sounded like I was talking about science fiction. And especially at that point, my act started to become more about race, and yeah. and so it was just this thing where like not realizing, well, I have to talk to them for, about it from the perspective they understand, and segue myself into their community. I can't just go talk with my big city tales of racism. Yeah, like, I don't. We don't. Uh, no, we don't. We don't have the bus or whatever. We don't. You know. So, from doing clubs and traveling and whatnot, how did you start to find your way onto TV? Uh, basically, I felt like it, at the clubs. You know, I was featuring and you know, sort of like off night headlining, you know, that kind of thing. But I wasn't getting. I'd done Montreal, and as happens for most comics at Montreal, nothing came out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went, I went to Montreal without a manager or an agent, and I came back without a manager or an agent. And it was just like, which is like the tri, the the you know, the, nothing. Like the, I was gonna say the trifecta, but there was that's only two. But you know, like <laughs> nothing. I came back and I was like, nothing happened. Nothing. I didn't get a TV set out of it. I didn't. <laughs> nothing happened, and I came back just sort of like, and that was in two thousand five, and and I was just like, I came back sort of like what do I do? Like, and then me and Kevin Avery went to Okinawa. Daniel Dugar had a gig in Okinawa. Oh, okay. And, uh, we did a bunch of gigs there. Five gigs, like five on army bases in Okinawa. It's five days in a row of gigs. And it was a little bit like playing Modesto again, Mm. except, you know, I had to do 45 minutes. And, and this is not, when I tell this story, I'm not sliding the troops at all, but in Okinawa, it's like 18 year old kids, and there's no fighting in Okinawa. So they're not, there's not the same thing. When people go to Iraq, I hear the troops are like, yeah, we're just glad you made it. But in Okinawa, they're just bored. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and they really would rather a stripper or a magician, you know, and so. So is it kind of the arms crossed, make me laugh kind of thing? It's funny. But they can't, they can't be rude because I think they're told not to be rude to the comedians. <laughs> But they do just sort of, it's just the, the, the sight of people visibly losing interest. In <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're sitting in their seats because they have been told yeah. they have to stay in their seats. They're, they, they might just sort of turn to the guy next to them and start a little conversation, but they keep it quiet. Yeah. But then you just, you'll look I think I've been on eyes. dates like that yeah, before in my life. Yeah, eyes looking at you, just waiting for something. They're just like, oh, do something funny, do something, anything, anything. Oh my and God. So I came back from that and I was like, what do I, what do I do for a living? And that was the point at which I wrote. I just I sort of took a break. I don't know how long I took a break for a month or so, and wrote started working on the one man show, the the W Kamau Bell Curve ending racism in about an hour. And the, I had been in the San Francisco scene long enough and done enough things that I sort of knew people in the independent theater community, and so I sort of knew I could rent a theater, and I had I sort of had made some inroads and made friends with theater with this theater owner. So he gave me a very reasonable rate, and I rented this theater on Thursday nights. Once a, once a week for or once a month for four months. Okay. And it was the first time I actually printed up posters and I like you know made a made made a like a flyer and yeah. a thing and sort of actually invested in this thing that I was doing. Which comics aren't at that comics are more used to that now. But that was a point at which co- we like I said me and Abe, there was we didn't know we had to do that. There was no self promotion. There was no self promotion. Whereas now you do a comic does one set an open mic with a flyer for his next show. You know? Yes. It's like you know then he's headlining a show. You yeah. Know? So. 
it, that's more common, but we had to learn. I actually learned that from the comics who were behind us. Like, okay. There was this whole class of comics here. It was like Brent Weinbach, mm. Jasper Red, Louis Katz. Started Richard using Katz. the internet. Yeah, right? who grew up, you know, they were like grew up in the internet. Yes. And, and social media hadn't broken yet, but it wasn't, they weren't going to start a social media page. They had them, you know, it was just a whole like, they were just a part of, it was a part of their life in a way it wasn't with us. And so I saw all these dudes, like I remember Brent Weinbach one night on a Sunday did the, uh, he did a show, Sunday night, which is supposed to be the night you're at the punchline. He did a show at a club across town, and I heard 200 people were there. Wow. And he was a dude who was like, he's not even opening here. Oh, <laughs> wow. He even, he's not even an opener. And then you start to realize, wait, I don't think that's really a thing. We're, these are all titles that are. Yes. But that, that's not, it's, not like, it's not like oxygen. It's not a thing. It's yeah. Just, uh, you know, and so I actually went to Brent, and I was like, hey, man, if you ever need an opener on any of your shows, I'll do it. And he was like, I never thought you, as he, you older guys, would want to do this. <laughs> And I was like, how'd that feel? Yeah, yeah. And I was like, I was like, I, I'll take that. It's just give me the gig. <laughs> so I did like three or four shows with him opening, and sort of realized, okay, I want to do my own show. And it's humbling. I don't know, say humbling myself, but humbling myself to go. Well, I'll say humbling myself to go to this younger dude who, by all rights, I should have been ahead of on the totem pole. Sure, but he just was. He's he's a great comic, and he just had a, a sense of uh, the capitalistic nature of it. Like, yes. I can go make money over here and have more fun than sitting here at the punchline. And then come back to the punch on the next week. Yeah. And, you know, that I sort of learning from him, I sort of go, okay, I opened for him a few times, had some good sets. And also, and just say, like, I can do this myself. I can go rent my own places. And so that's what I started doing. Started out once a month for four months. Then it was once a week for 13 weeks. Then we did a whole full run over three months. And, and it was the most I'd performed. And like I just was always performing instead of like, and that you know, changes the paradigm, doesn't it? Yes, and like I, so when we did the theater run, the three month theater run, I was doing Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, and every night I'm doing like an hour and a half. Whereas in the club, if I was headlining, I was maybe stretching to forty five minutes. But this, because it was my show, I could talk differently. I could tell stories that I knew there was funniness in it, but I didn't. It didn't. It wasn't filled with punchlines. Yeah, work stuff out, and I had multimedia, so I was like. It just pulled out a part of my brain that stand up wasn't pulling out, that strict stand up wasn't pulling out, and that ended up being the show that Chris Rock saw like a couple years later. That he then said, "There's a TV show in this," and that ended up being totally biased. So, That's great. Did Spam Busters help at all? With... Spam Busters gave me. I was like, I thought, I thought at that point I wanted to be a serious dramatic actor, and then when I was on the set of Spam Busters, I go, I don't think I'm an actor. <laughs> Sometimes now I'll get my my uh, agent or manager will send me things for auditions. I'm like, I, I don't, I can't let somebody do it who actually studies and cares about the craft. I, I, you know, What was it like when, uh, first of all, how did you get approached by Chris Rock to, to, A, find out he liked your show, and B, that he was interested in doing something with you? Well, it was, you know, it's that thing in comedy, and we were just sort of talking about this before it started. Like, you just, if you're around long enough, like you said, you ended up at a birthday party that, yes. you know, that you did, felt like you shouldn't be at. <laughs> Because, you know, how did I get it? It's that thing where you just, if you're around long enough and you're nice enough, you just end up sort of, so I met, a, so through Kevin Kataoka, I met a guy named Chuck Sklar, who liked seeing my one, I did at the Comedy Central Theater, the Comedy Central stage in LA at the Hudson, and Chuck Sklar came and saw it. Chuck was like, there's a TV show in here, and I had, me and Kevin Avery had submitted to write on the D.L. Hughley CNN show that existed mm-hmm. for a week, and Chuck was the head writer, so he sort of knew who I was, okay. who I was already. He came to the show. He called me the next day. He's like, there's a TV show in there. And I was like, whatever, LA guy. <laughs> but he also works with Chris all the time. Okay. So there was this, there was a point at which Chris told me later that like, 
basically two people that he trusted told him about me independently. And, independently, and one was Chuck, and his other one was Jocelyn Cooper, who he grew up, grown up with. And so those two people's recommendation was enough to get him to the UCB Theater in New York. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, and wow. I didn't know he was there, and it was after the show. He just sort of floated backstage, and you know, the rest is canceled. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was a totally, you know, it's not how things are supposed to work. And then because he's Chris Rock and he has so much like clout. Selling the show wasn't, you know, he funded a pilot. Yeah. And then he basically took it to, I think he took it to HBO. And they're like, at that point, they were like, no, Bill Maher's good. And then uh, <laughs> then he took it to FX. And I, I, from my perspective, FX knew this network FXX was coming. I don't know oh, for sure. Okay, so they, and so they were in the middle of acquiring a lot of content. Yeah. The point they, had, like, they had a lot of new shows because they knew they were going to farm some of it out too. Oh, I so see. I became yeah. one of like. I think they would have been happy if Russell Show would work. They would have, they would have put hit, we'd put us both on FSX. Sure, but yeah. I think they were, you know, and and I mean, I, they liked the show and they were always very good and supportive. And but yeah, just uh, that's how it all sort of ended up there. And so now, what uh, what do you set your sights on now? I mean, you're back here, kind of yes. back back on your home turf. I mean, but you've made those contacts. You've had that experience. Yeah. Um, and I think it was a good experience. When I look back at the stuff that was written about the show online from people, that, I mean, people enjoyed the show. You got a lot of positive comments and feedback. We did. I think the, the way I say it, it's like it's like I become another African American folktale. <laughs> like, you know, the man couldn't handle my truth bombs. So there's a sense that that there's that thing that happens and uh and I Mike Burbigley actually said this as a way to introduce me on stage and I was like he's just being nice. But there's those shows that exist. He was like arrested development that people feel like are taken before they're, they're before t- they're over. And he sort of mentioned my show in the league of those shows. I was like that's very nice. I'm going to quote you on that, but I'm not going to believe it. Uh, <laughs> but there's a sense that people sort of felt like they were, they didn't love it until it was gone. And then they're like, wait, but the, 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 the thing. It's a, and so now I feel like it's a little like, bit like Woodstock where everybody was claiming they were there. Yes. <laughs> but if they had been there, we'd still be on the air. But uh, <laughs> so, yeah, it, I, I'm proud of the work that we put in. There's a lot of stuff on there that is going to stick with me for the rest of my career. That Things clips keep being posted from the show that, that and people think they're new. Yeah. Uh, people, when the people sometimes ask me, when's the show coming back? Even though we haven't been on the air for, it's almost a year now. Yeah. It's like nine months now. But, uh, so I'm proud of that work. And I also feel like that's how it happens sometimes is that that's going to exist and be in its thing, but it, it's going to be this touchstone that people will go back to. And then it, but it's also propelling me onto the next thing. So, um, yeah, I'm actually right now, you know, I'm about to go on a big stand-up tour that I wouldn't be able to do without the show in the fall. The plan is to record a comedy special at the end of the tour. Uh, and I'm also like, you know, t- I, I, I'm at this point where I'm taking, I'm talking to a lot of people. I'm talking about, I'm talking about starting up another podcast, like a okay. regular podcast. And I'm working on a pilot, uh, which, you know, it's hard to, you don't want to say too much about that, sure. so, but I, but it's a pilot for a very different type of show than totally biased, but a show that I'm happy, excited to do. And, is it where you fight? Spam on the internet. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I don't want to go into. Oh it. yeah, let's not discuss uh, it. But you're gonna have to get your lawyers involved because <laughs> I think Spam Busters was my idea, if I remember correctly. Uh, no, but it's a it's a show that I'm very excited about doing, and it's an idea that I had liked before. So yeah, it's it's a thing that if it goes, but it will also allow me to live in the Bay Area. So, oh nice. Yeah, because we, you know, my wife is from Monterey, which is like two hours south of here. Yeah, I lived here for 15 years, so I got a lot of friends. So this here. is home. This is home, and just with a kid and another kid on the way. 
I just want, you know, Sammy to have the benefit of growing up with friends. You know, like, yes. you know, like, you know, like Melissa, my wife has friends she's known since she was in kindergarten. I moved around a lot. I don't have friends like that. Oh, okay. I've known since, I, my you've best friend got, I've known since high school. You've got you know? and comedians. Yeah, and comedians. Yeah. So. Yeah. In fact, you mentioned Kevin, and I guess Kevin's now on the um, John Oliver John show. Oliver show. Yes, which yeah. I, I to me that's the one of the big victories of the show. Is yeah. That me and Kevin have been friends forever. And even we, we even have been, we've been friends so long. I remember when we weren't friends and we didn't like each other. <laughs> we had that, who's that other black guy over there? Thing. Uh, you know, so, and, and in the, in the, the death of the show, there was a lot of, there was a lot of blame throwing going around. And oh, okay. like there was a little sense of like, cause Kevin was a head writer that there was blame being thrown his way, which was not, he did not earn. And the fact that he is now writing on the hottest, which is great. Yeah. And kicking ass and, that I, I couldn't be happier for him, and it just yeah. and it just feels and it feels good that and we're that's a, we're talking about a podcast together, so we can like do it from remote. Sure, that would be great. But yeah, so it's a, I couldn't be happier for him. Like, and there's there's victories like that, like Hari Kondabolu, who was a comic on the show and wrote for the show. His album came out, and it's been everywhere, and he's been on Letterman, and and he's a dude who before the show I knew he was great, but nobody else did. Yeah, you know, or not the general public, and now he's like did ter- he did Terry Gross, which means he's been bona fide. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's it. There's a there could be this legacy effect to it. I mean, uh, you know, look at Dana Carvey's variety show. You yes. know, he had Louis C.K. was a writer on the show. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. he had Steve Carell. Steve Carell, yeah. And Stephen Colbert. They Steve were... Carell, who was my director of my Level Five Second City show. Okay, there yeah, you go. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, they were essentially both kind of discovered by being on that show. Yeah, the, you know, and, like the Ben Stiller show. Yeah, there, and that's why I feel like there's just there are certainly t- there were certainly talented people on that show, and. Like I said, history is going to prove. I believe history will prove that, like, whether we figured it out at that time, there we were all talented people, and we certainly were doing something that that the spirit of hadn't been done before. And I think you know, even you know, just since that show had started to where web production is now, you could easily do a web show for Yahoo or YouTube mm-hmm. or your own channel yeah, or yeah, whatever. Yes. yes. And now you've got the cred to be able to say, hey, now we're doing this. And I don't have to explain what it is anymore, which right. is great. Like, that's the great thing. I don't have to even explain my comic perspective because it's just, it's clear from what the work was. It's like that the the work that has lived on. There's a lot of work on the show that will not live on, and I wish I could get the clips down. But there's what the work that people, the work that people talk about and that sort of gets passed around is all the stuff I'm like, yeah, that's what the show was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I guess we should talk about the fact this is uh, this is the week that uh, Robin Williams uh, was uh, was found dead. Yes, um, which is uh, sobering for everybody in in kind of the world. Yeah, if you, no, it's, if, it's, if you look at the world press, but particularly here, yeah, in the Bay Area. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really, I don't know, it's a yeah, it's a, it was, it's yeah, it's the fact that I mean, not not to make it just for me to be back at this point, like this would have been a story I would have read about. Yeah. At, and just sort of to be here and to feel it in the Bay Area air, it really is a it's a it's a different thing that because people all over the world, as you say, are feeling his loss, but it feels so profound here. It really is because I mean, there was not a club that you could go to in San Francisco that he would not eventually show up mm-hmm. and do time in. Yeah. yeah, and it didn't matter what time of the comedy arc it was, whether it was yes. in the late seventies, the mid eighties, the early nineties, up till a couple of months ago. Yeah. He would show up at open mics. He would show up at big clubs, little clubs. Yeah, I wrote a thing for my website about it because I just felt like I wanted to, you know, I felt like there's people were like, 
testifying about here's my experience with Robin. A lot of comics on Facebook were doing that, and I was like, felt like he had re- he did have a dramatic impact on my life. And I realized as I was writing it, like he'd had it in two ways. Like, you know, it's funny you say comedy influences. Mork and Mindy was like, you know, like I'm old enough to like that. I was watching it not in reruns when it was yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I thought about this later. I didn't write it in my piece, but. I realized I was such a big Robin Williams fan as a kid that I actually dragged my mom to take me to movies that were not comedy movies for kids because Mork was such a... I was like, if he's in it... It's got to be... World According to Garp, let's go. <laughs> like, he's in it. Mork is in it, so it's going to be funny. Yeah. And so, I mean, I'm sitting, you know, I don't know how I was... You know, eight, nine, ten, or whatever, watching World According to Garp, you know, uh, Moscow and the Hudson. Waiting for the laughs. He's in it. <laughs> it's going to come eventually, you know, going to see Popeye, which is weirdly not a kid's movie. Yeah. <laughs> He's in it. It must be for me. Yeah. So. I mean, I was, you know, I, I had mentioned, I think, before we started recording that I was, you know, working with the Comedy Underground, which is this improv group at the Punchline, and he would just drop in on a Monday night, and it was just so kind of surreal i mean i'd seen him around years before and everything else but this was like 85 86 and i just remember one night i never forget this scene because he it was a shakespeare scene and i was i had just started doing improv and i couldn't fake my way through shakespeare at all so all i would say is yay and no (laughs) and he it was so funny because everybody in the cast got up in the scene because they all wanted to be on stage with robin and he eventually killed everyone on stage in the course of the action of the scene. Yes. Uh, and he was standing over our bodies, launching into this soliloquy that seemed to go on for like t- 15 minutes. Yes, yes, yes. And we're all just lying there going, what is happening right <laughs> yeah, now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How long are we going to be down here? And to watch him go from that, which was... To me, it was almost sort of like, look how selfish this guy is. He just killed every other actor in the scene. <laughs> so he have the stage to himself, yeah. And then I was doing improv with him, you know, a few months ago. Yeah. At the Throckmorton, and he had become the most giving improviser. It didn't matter who you were. Yeah. He, if you were in the scene with him, it was your scene. Yes. Not his scene. So yeah. it was interesting to have seen his evolution, mm-hmm. regardless of all the other comics who had evolved because of him, which mm-hmm. was really interesting. So... No, it's, it's, uh, and that's the thing. And I think he also, as I was wrote my thing that he, he, he was aware of his power, you know, yeah. I feel like that's the point at which I met him, that he was a guy who clearly knew it was, I mean, when did, it, I feel like it was post when, but he came, he started coming around when I was around in like 2001, uh-huh. cause it was before, uh, his big return. Like it was, I think it was called live on Broadway. Yes. Uh, yeah. It was like he was clearly gearing up for that, which we realized later. But he started, so he was around a lot for for a very short period of time. But he would like hang out with the comics before it went on, and you know we were all like not, you know, as as I said, our biggest credit would have been hanging out with Robin Williams. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was funny when I read that. Yeah, Yeah. no, it was like, and and so he would just hang out with us and riff with us, and we would try to riff with him, and he was, you know, there was, and then he would go on stage, and you would just watch the whole like the crowd because they didn't know he was coming and the, and people's heads would explode and cameras would appear out of nowhere and just it was just this and you know he would get a standing ovation on the way up and on the way down like it was just like you know it was just and to see the power that he had and then yeah. he was aware of it because I feel like and and then like as, as he did for me he thought I was funny and made a point to figure out a way to tell me like he yeah. was he, he we were on the same benefit together I left because I had to go to another gig and I came back to the benefit to hang out because it was a big deal benefit. And then he had looked for my, he had like tried to track me down and then got my contact information just so he could tell me 
that he thought it was funny. And to me, it's like, <laughs> who does that? Yeah, I'm not doing that for you. <laughs> like, I mean, but it has reminded me to try to do that. You yeah, know? yeah. Whatever little bit of you know, thing I have going, I realized that it helps people. And if you reach back or reach down, or absolutely, you, just, you know, try to get because. I don't know. I think there's a side of comics where we don't do that enough. Sometimes I think we get so protective of our position, and that's what Chris did for me with the show. Like he, like he doesn't need that. She didn't need that executive producer credit. Like you yeah, know, yeah. He's trying to, he doesn't need his resume doesn't need filling. And you know, Robin was aware of that, and he was very generous. And and it was funny because, and that's why when he was like, it was the impact of when he finding out he had passed was just so like. I don't. I don't think I was done knowing him. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, don't, I thought there was going to be. I thought there was going to be more. Yeah, I mean, Comedy Day is coming up, which yeah. is always this huge event in San Francisco, and he, you know, almost especially since he's been back here, yeah. you know, he almost always shows up and is the last act up. Yes. You know, and so that's going to be something like. Well, I guess that's not happening anymore. Yeah. That. Yeah. That there's not going to be the. He hasn't said he's coming, but he's coming. That yeah. thing that happens at backstage at Comedy Day. Well, Robin said he might be here. Maybe he won't be here. He's here. He's here. <laughs> yeah, like that's. Yeah. It's he was he was the uh, you know maybe official. I was gonna say unofficial. He was like the Godfather of San Francisco. Comedy. Definitely. And yeah, you know whatever you thought about him because you know we, he's a big famous guy. So you may go, I don't like his movies. Right. Once you were in the room with him. It was just like you're. I'm with one of the <laughs> nicest, greatest people. <laughs> yeah, know? and that's. I mean, he was genuinely, incredibly nice. Yes, and yeah, and I. Yeah, it's 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 you know, and and uh, even my wife, which you know, she. I don't know that she would have described herself as a Robin Williams fan. Certainly, mm-hmm. she you know liked we liked the movies and whatever was not not a fan, but just you know when she somebody posted the picture, the still from Aladdin. Yeah, where the, the oh. genie is hugging Aladdin. And she was looking at her computer and she's just crying. And yeah. it was just like, you, I don't think we were, I mean, you knew him and were yeah. around him semi-regularly. But there was, this, but like my wife is like, I don't know if she'd ever met, maybe she met him. Yeah, she actually met him, the, she was at the night I was for the benefit. But like, has no direct connection to him. And would not have been like my favorite actor is Robin Williams, but he had that sort of impact on people. I think he was, so. He, well, when he, he grabbed you, you didn't realize how deep he had you. And I mean, he's just, he's been around for so long. Yes. But still uh, and, relevant. That's yeah, the part that's, that's so... I think that's a big difference, you yeah, know, because there's certainly no... people that are around for 40 years that, you know, they had their 15 or 20 years and now it's like, oh, look, is that guy. Yeah. That's the, the weird thing. And yeah, then they was... die and you go, I didn't know he was still alive. Yes. 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 <laughs> or he just did, or people who seem old, like, you know, like, yeah, it just seemed like, oh, well, yeah, you know, that guy's old. Like, you know, I don't, I don't want to name any names, but there's comics who are contemporaries of his who seem old. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? Like, and not that it's their fault. 63 is not, I mean, it's not, it's you not know, young. You yeah. can be old at 63 if yes. you want to be, but he didn't seem. No, he had energy yeah. and just. And kinda, when he bounded yeah. out on stage, whether it was at, you know, an awards era, a talk show, he just, he was, you know, there was no, he felt very relevant. Yeah. You know, and, and that's the part I think is so shaking about it is that when you see someone so relevant suddenly gone it's just yeah. you know it just yeah it's and yeah. i just booked a gig to to be at the throckmorton to do like to be there like this has all happened this week and i was like it just feels weird to go back there and yes i know yeah just yeah it's gonna be odd i didn't i mean i didn't want to get maudlin about it but it just happened a couple of days ago so i figured we should talk about it no i it's <laughs> I, it would be weird not to talk about it i feel like it would be a disservice to the legacy and the impact he had and, this, and like i say personally went out of his way to impact my life positively 
and I know other, and many comics. And that's what I think I would like. I would like regular people to know that many comics have that story of Robin seeking them out to go. I want to let you know that you're funny, or you. The way he, the he said to me is, "You have the spark." And I heard other people. I heard other people mm-hmm. say so that was his like. You know, I felt yeah. like it's like it's like his version is his version of the Johnny Carson. Uh, yeah, yeah, o- yeah. Okay, yes. sign. The okay, sign. Yeah, I felt like yeah. I, I felt like it's one of those things where whatever you know, because mo- so much of comedy is words, and it just disappears, and it's sort of ephemeral, and it's like until you know, it just sort of, and it will all sort of at some point it will die because nobody will be able to understand. Like when you listen to a Lenny Bruce album, it's like what was going on here? Yes, yeah. <laughs> you know, because it's so far, it's so temporal, it's so yeah, fixed yeah. in that time, like. I need to know who this B actor is he's making fun of uh, <laughs> yeah. for me to get this bit about Nixon. Uh, you know, like so, and it just, it sort of passes very quickly, but the, it just feels like there's things that have happened in my career. And that's one of them where it's like, well, that happened. Yeah. That happened. And it's in an email, so I can prove it, <laughs> but it happened. And that, and the struggles and the thing that I, you know, that I, that I talked about a little bit is like, I have certainly, you know, there's, it's, a, it's an impossible career to do. And it doesn't make sense. And certainly the older you get and the more responsibilities you have, there's times you go, maybe I should get a job at a video store. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, you, know, like, there's, you start to sort of sometimes go, even in the middle of what might be considered a success, you go, maybe I should figure something else out. And <laughs> But so whatever I am as a comic, I know that I was enough of a comic for him to say something. Yeah. And so that to me is like, you know. It's it's I'm I'm honored. That, that's an award nobody can take away that's from you. That's a show can. nobody can cancel FX, on you. FX can't take that away from me. And they tried. They said also Ron Williams didn't tell you from No, he did. I, I have the email. the email. I will print out the email and show it to you. What's uh, what's the best way of people to uh, keep track of your through your website? I mean, you know, for certainly my website now that I'm uh, you know, now that I'm back in the bay, I'm really trying to write more things and post more things, but you know, I get pretty. I have a pretty active streak on Twitter and Facebook. That, uh, okay. I'll let you know how I feel about things. <laughs> okay. And yeah. I often will respond to people if they say things. Not if they're just mean, but if they say things that I think are interesting. I so on Twitter, it's just W. Kamal Bell. W. Kamal Bell, and you know, look me up on Facebook, W. Kamal Bell, and my website. And like I said, I'm, I'm going on tour. So you know, if you live in a town, I think I'll be somewhere in the three-hour drive of it. <laughs> Excellent. And if you and Kevin get your uh, your podcast going, you will be clipped on Succotash. Oh, well, we're going to get it going. It's all so, just about, yeah, we just have to deal with the... And uh, I have it on good authority that the guy who hosts Succotash also reviews podcasts for Splitsider.com and Huffington Post. Oh, so, yeah. well, you, you will have a podcast to review. <laughs> I, I don't want to break it. I don't want to break the news yet, but you will have a podcast All right, very good. Well, uh, Kamal, it's great to talk to you. Welcome back to the Bay Area, and Thanks. thanks for talking to us. And uh, look forward to seeing you around. Yeah, I look forward to being around. All right, man. Take care. Thanks again to W. Kamau Bell. You can visit his home site at W. Kamau, K-A-M-A-U-B-E-L-L, WKamauBell.com to see his scheduled appearances. Also read his blog. And remember, if you're in the Bay Area, he will be at the 142 Throckmorton Theater on September 11th at 8 p.m. Wilder sees us to the door with the second Burst O'Durst this episode, he calls this report Slacker Congress and gives them a sound spanking for taking off for their summer recess after accomplishing pretty much nothing. Hey guys, Will Durst here with a few choice words concerning our elected officials exiting Washington like frightened rats streaming out of sewers to escape Godzilla. And really, who can blame them? Anybody who's ever spent the summer in D.C. will tell you it's a lot like hell with humidity. Not sure even hell has winged insects the size of footstools. They don't call it foggy bottom for nothing, you know. 
The thing is, this is the same Congress about to break all previous records for futility. The zero-zip zilch boys, who have taken lethargy to bold new heights, or is it depths? Folks who would need mechanical assists to raise themselves from stuporous to torpid. Drugged slugs. Debbie does drowsy. In essence, what they're doing is taking a vacation from doing nothing. Like waking up to take a nap. The 113th Congress is destined to go down in history as the do-nothingest Congress of all do-nothing Congresses. They're the undisputed champs of do-nothingness. The slacker Congress who have now been released into their home districts to freely roam amongst normal people beginning a five-week recess. One question, how do you relax from doing nothing? Slip into a coma? Not just a vacation, it's a five-week paid vacation. They must think they're in Europe. And the odd part is, they have to. It's the law. The Legislative Reorganization Act of 1970 requires Congress to take off the entire month of August. Not sure, but think it had something to do with members of the Senate being photographed in bathing suits around our nation's capital, which surely aroused a plaintive cry from the city's denizens. So, let's hope they get some rest and are ready for the tough task of remaining inactive and not passing any legislation when they come back after Labor Day. Labor Day. <laughs> sure wasn't named after these guys. For Suckatash, the comedy podcast podcast, I'm Will Durst. You can have more Durst at WillDurst.com. He also tweets at Will Durst on Twitter. You can also like him on Facebook. You can like us on Facebook, too, but it's high time we were out of here now. Some people think these Suckatash episodes are getting a little too long. I prefer to think of us as the podcast that keeps on giving. You can remember to give, too, by visiting our SuckatashShow.com site and using either our Amazon banner every time you want to go shopping in the world's largest everything store, or clicking on our donate button and pitching us a few pennies, or click on through from our home site to our Suckatashery to buy some merch. You see, even though Henderson's runs commercials on our show, they're not paying us anything, and this is a commercial-free podcast, really. Uh, it's all uh, funded by me. Unless you're going to help me out. Easy peasy, succotash squeezy. Now get out there, then pass that succotash. You've been listening to Suckatash, the comedy podcast podcast with your host, Mark Hershon. Brought to you by Henderson's Pants and... Imagine your company's name right here. Find us on the web at SuckatashShow.com, on iTunes, on Stitcher Smart Radio, and on SoundCloud. You can also hear us streaming and like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Suckatash Show. Email us at MA at SuckatashShow.com or call into the Suckatash hotline at our non-toll-free call number 818-921-7212 Suckatash is produced and engineered with the kind assistance of Joe Paulino through the auspices of Studio P. Sausalito, home of the hit. Our associate producer is Tyson Saner. Our musical director is Scott Carvey. Our booth assistant is Kenny Durges. Until next time, I am your loyal booth announcer, Bill Haywatt, reminding you to please pass the succotash. Goodbye. Go ahead, say succotash. Succotash! <laughs> <laughs>